Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Down with D&D. My name is Sean Merwin, and today we have a wonderful and knowledgeable guest, Scott Fitzgerald Gray. Scott, thank you so much for coming on Down with D&D to talk with us today. Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, awesome yeah. to be here. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to have you here for this reason. I'm going to list a few D&D products, Scott, and I want you to tell the audience what they have in common. Uh, Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus, Tomb of Annihilation, Acquisitions Incorporated, Waterdeep Dragon Heist, Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, Dungeons and Dragons vs. Rick and Morty, Dragon of Ice Spire Peak in the Essentials Kit, uh, Eberron Rising from the Last War, uh, Ghosts of Saltmarsh. I'll stop right there. Well, Sean, uh, what all of those <laughs> products have in common is the amazing roster of designers who worked on them. Yeah, there's also this editor that worked on all of those as well. <laughs> yeah, I that would be I would, uh, one of one of the editors who worked on all of those. Uh, yes, the, the, all of the all of those have in common. Yes. one Scott Fitzgerald Gray. Those who, are all books. Uh, those are all books that I have been fortunate enough to have worked on for Five E. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and that's just like a very short list of the Five E Wizards of the Coast products that you've worked on. Yeah, um, the the list. We could, I could spend like 45 minutes of the podcast probably listing all the things that, that you've worked on as an editor. It is a surprisingly um, long list. Yeah, every time I go and go on and try to update my website with new stuff, I'm, I'm, I am surprised and shocked and somewhat embarrassed at the, the, <laughs> the number of things I've been fortunate enough to have worked on uh, since I started doing RPG work. And, and so, but not only are you a prolific and trusted freelance editor because Wizard seems to keep coming back to you, you also are a designer. Uh, could you talk for just a minute about some of the projects you've worked on as a designer? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't do as much design work in RPGs as I do editing work. Um, partly uh, by choice, I really enjoy editing uh, as much as I enjoy writing and designing. Um, partly it's just that, you know, I get asked to edit more often than I get asked, asked to do, uh, asked to do writing and design work. Um, I did a little bit, the, the stuff I've worked on most recently, um, I did some design work on the Acquisitions Incorporated book, which I believe mm -hmm. you know. I do. Um, I just did a little bit. I was kind of the, the fourth wheel behind, uh, you and Teos and Jerry, uh, on that book, just kind of, uh, uh, picking up a couple of sections. Um, I wrote a really big, really kind of fun adventure called Dead in Thay uh, mm -hmm. for D&D Next during the playtest, mm -hmm. which was then resurrected and put in an appearance uh, in Tales of the Yawning Portal, which was mm -hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, done a couple of short adventures and some little supplements on DMs Guild and Drive Through RPG. Um, the one other thing I've done recently that I'm quite proud of is I did an adventure for young first-time DMs. An adventure that was specifically written for sort of people, players, you know, 10 to 12 years old, kind of sitting down and running a game for the first time. And it's a big sort of sprawling dungeon crawl. It's called uh, The Hidden Halls of Hazakor. We did a successful Kickstarter for it a couple of years ago. And a lot of people have really liked that. And I've been pretty happy with that because that was an adventure that I'd wanted to put out for quite a while. And it's one that sort of is pretty close to my heart in terms of the things that I really love about the game. And I wanted to kind of put some of that love into something of my own. Yeah, and that, I mean, that's a huge issue right now, too. We have all of this new audience for D&D, I guess, out there. Yeah. And, and the same sort of tools we've always had to teach DMs, right? Yeah. It's just, here, read this book, run this adventure, read this book, kind of learn by trial and error. Yeah. And we, we do have streaming now, which is helpful because DMs can at least see, hey, this is how other DMs run it. Yeah. But having that, that physical copy of something in their hand that kind of leads them through that process is so important. Uh, yeah. And that's why I was super excited to see your, uh, your contribution to that. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah. I had a lot of fun working on it. Um, I've gotten great feedback from it. I've, 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 I've gotten feedback from parents who are playing it with their kids. I've got feedback from it, uh, sorry, feedback on it from parents who have given it to their kids to run them through games, you know? Uh, so it's a yeah. pretty, lots of, lots of, lots of people are enjoying it, uh, which is awesome. really kind of at the end of the day, that's kind of what you hope for. 
Okay. Well, when we get into our full topic, which is going to be lessons from an editor, since you are an editor and, and I sometimes do some editing, yep. I thought we could talk about, you know, for DMs, for players, for people looking to publish, some tips. And sure. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get back to that. But before we get to that, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about your history with D&D as a game, like how you got into it yeah. and when did it become a job for you? Um, how I got into it is kind of an odd story at least i think it's an odd story maybe other people have similar experiences but um it was in high school uh 1980 um so sort of right at the sort of the the beginning of the crest of first edition ad and d's popularity mm -hmm. and i had a group of friends and we were all into gaming we played a lot of avalon hill games uh kingmaker avalon hills kingmaker that was kind of my go-to game they were more into squad leader and those sorts of things but we would you know we would get together every weekend and we would game that was kind of our thing. Mm -hmm. And I remember very distinctly a couple of times where I had seen um, the Holmes Blue Box on the shelf mm -hmm. at the game store. And I had looked at it, and I had read the back cover, and I didn't quite get it. Like, I couldn't quite figure out what it was. I thought to myself, oh, this is something I'll maybe check out at some point. But, you know, it just didn't, it didn't click for some reason because I, I, re I really had no sense of what it was about. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, the subtext for this story is I grew up in a small town in the Canadian hinterland of about 2,000 mm -hmm. people. So that sort okay. of gives you a sense of, you know, what kind of, uh, what kind of exposure to the larger gaming world I had at that point. Right. Um, and then at some point, a friend of mine um moved down to vancouver then came back to our small town and when he came back he was like i've been playing this game called dungeons and dragons and you're not going to believe it it's amazing and we're like oh so tell us about it and he started to tell us about it and he like a lot of things it's like, like you know it didn't quite make sense and he was like well you do this but no it's more like this and he finally just he did that thing that i think happens over and over again where he just says you know what i can't explain it let's just play mm -hmm. right the whole kind of learn by doing thing the very first game of dnd i played we didn't have any rule books because we were just out. He didn't have his books with him. We weren't at his place, <laughs> right? We were playing with the rules as he remembered them. Okay. We cut up some paper and put numbers on them to make chits, threw them in a bag so we could actually get some random stuff going so we didn't have any dice with us, right? Mm -hmm. He just made the adventure up off the top of his head. Uh, I don't even think we rolled ability scores, probably. He just kind of gave us some numbers and said, this is what you can do. Here's a couple of spells. You know, if you're attacking, this is the number you want to beat, that sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. We played for maybe an hour and a half. It was sort of, I remember there was like a cave mouth and there was a dragon on the other side and there was some treasure. It's a very basic, you know, mm -hmm. generic dungeon crawl. And I remember very distinctly at the end of that hour and a half, I knew my life had changed. Because mm -hmm. the process of playing that game, the process of taking on the persona of a character, of taking on the persona of an adventuring hero was something I had never experienced before. I've been reading fantasy and, 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 and speculative fiction my whole life. Right. Watched a lot of TV, watched a lot of movies. Nothing came close to the feeling that I got over that hour and a half. And that was the point at which I started gaming and I have and I've never stopped. Yeah. I, I mean, I think while, while the specifics are different, I think that story resonates with a lot of people who, yeah. you know, came of age during the 80s, you know, the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. When there there wasn't video games, per se. True. Um, you know, the video game was Pong or Space Invaders, basically. Yeah. Um, and, and so this ability to, to take fiction and gamify it and become a part of it was absolutely mind-blowing and revelatory. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I... Yeah, it's it's hard to describe, especially to younger generations who have come up with media, uh, you know, grown up with media in a different form than we had it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, because it's just it's it's indescribable to 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 have that feeling for the first time, like you are immersing yourself into this story. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, people yeah. who have grown up with video games can look at D and D and say, "Oh, it's like a video game, but different," or you know, more ideally, it's like a video game but better. Right. right. When we were playing, it wasn't like anything. There was mm -hmm. literally nothing you could compare it to. It was just, it was just, it was absolutely revelatory. Right. And, and that's why you, when you hear people saying, oh, D&D &D is ripping off these video games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we just sat there going, yes, that is exactly what's happening. Sit down, uh, son. I'm going to explain yes. things to you. <laughs> yes. Let me explain Legend of Zelda to when, you. When I was uh, your age. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We, we start getting into that. Yeah. If I had a lawn, I would be yelling at them to get <laughs> off it. Uh, well, well, that's great. So when did this uh, hobby then become a job for you? This hobby became a job for me in, 
way back in 2004. So just over just over 15 years now, because it was um, February, I think, early early 2004 when I first started. Um, I'd worked in publishing for quite a while up to that point. That was kind of where I uh, deviated into after uh, after university. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd done a lot of writing. I'd done a lot of editing. I'd done you know graphics, art design, the whole kind of the whole wide range of stuff you can do in 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 publishing at that point in time. And I had absolutely no intention of going into RPGs. I didn't know it was even possible. Here's this is my my ignorance of the industry back at that point in time was I didn't know that they used freelance editors. I knew they used freelance designers, mm-hmm. you know, for doing for working on stuff. But my writing at that time, I was sort of focused on screenwriting and doing some some novel writing and short fiction, and that that was kind of satisfying me. I didn't I didn't really feel an urge to get into uh, uh, game design, and I, I I certainly wouldn't have felt qualified to do it at that point. But editing was something I was really good at. So I was reading. There's a a, a wonderful wonderful woman uh, named Sue Wainland who, in my humble opinion, is might be the one the best definitely one of the best editors who's ever worked in RPGs. And mm-hmm. way back at that point in time, she was running uh, a company called Malhavik Press. Mm-hmm. And she had a blog that I'd like to read because um, she's a really interesting person. And I was reading her blog and she said, hey, I heard through the grapevine that Wizards of the Coast might be looking for freelance editors. So if you're interested, you should drop a resume to Chris Perkins. And I was like, that's interesting. Yeah. So I dropped a resume to Chris Perkins. Chris Perkins is a person I owe a great deal to, um, as I will explain now, because Chris did three things for me when I sent him that. The first thing he did was email me back and say, actually, Sue's info was wrong. You shouldn't, this shouldn't come to me. It should go to Kim Mohan. Mm-hmm. Uh, second thing he did was to say, I've actually already sent this to Kim Mohan, so you don't need to worry about um, following up with him again. And the third thing he did was to tell me, you have to make sure that you continually harass him endlessly because he's really, really busy and otherwise he won't get back to you. Right. And that was extremely important because I'm the sort of person who, if I email you once and I don't hear back from you, I might email you a second time. And if I don't hear back from you, I'm just like, okay, you, you know, they're not interested. They got better things yeah. to do, whatever. And it took me three times emailing Kim before he finally got back to me again, just because he's very, he was at that point an extremely busy person. Mm-hmm. Uh, so talking to Kim, told him a little bit about who I was and what I'd done. He sent me the most fiendishly dangerous editing test I think anyone has ever <laughs> done for me. It was um, it was on paper. He like couriered me a stack of a stack of pages, uh, which were mm-hmm. from a couple of uh, Frostburn. I think was was what most of them were from, which yep. was just either out at that time or was just was just in uh, production. So these were the unedited pages from Frostburn, and he said, you know, mark these up. Which is mm-hmm. a pretty daunting thing, because unless you're a person of a certain age, which yep. I obviously am, uh, knowing how to mark stuff up, like copy edit on paper, even back then was kind of a dying art. But I yeah. had done it. I knew how to do it. You know, so I marked the stuff up, went through it religiously, made lots of notes, uh, you know, erred on the side of caution, saying, you know, you know, in this thing, it could be X or it could be Y. I, I'm not sure what your style guide is. You know, so this is something I would review. Mm-hmm. and got an email back from Kim a little while later saying that he uh, was happy with the results of my test and what I like to work on a book. And that book, the first one I worked on, was Complete Arcane, which mm-hmm. was in uh, February, I think, of 2004 I started. And wow. I've been working for Wizards of the Coast. I mean, I've worked for other people as well, but I've, I've been freelancing for Wizards of the Coast pretty much nonstop, continuously, uh, mm-hmm. from 2004 till right now. Yeah. You know, that that's that's a great uh, story. It- I had a very similar experience. I applied to be an editor there, right. uh, not a freelancer, but full time. And the, the the situation was almost identical. the The text they sent me was different, but it was in paper form, and it was marked us up on the page. And, uh, and being in the same boat as you, I had had just enough journalistic experience right. um, that I knew all the all the symbols and all the signs and all the shorthand to to do that. And uh, I think that's especially. Uh, you know, dealing with someone who comes from a journalistic background, when they see that in use, it it kind of lets them know that you not only do you know what you're doing, but you know you know what you're doing. You understand the uh, process. I think exactly. is probably important. Yep. I mean, publishing. I mean, people people who who are outside the industry. I mean, lo- people are doing lots of cool stuff. You know, there's like like self publishing RPG stuff is 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 such a huge thing right now, and you know, certainly even. Ten years ago, uh, you know, um, I, I don't think anybody would have expected where where a site like the DMs Guild could have gone to by now, sure. right? Yep. 
But for a big company, a big company that's doing big books and they're that are that are you know having those books printed and distributed in a traditional fashion, there's a there's a process, you know, and that process is pretty much the same as it you know right now as it was when I first started getting into publishing. I mean, mm -hmm. the technology has changed a lot, certainly, right? But the idea that there are stages to these things and there's a process to these things is important. And I think, you know, knowing people who understand the process, um, you know, a, 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 for me at least, and, and it sounds like for you, ultimately, you know, that was a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that leads us up to today, where yes. you now have been for over 15 years, uh, not just a great editor, but a great editor with an expertise in D&D. &D. Yeah. Uh, so what I want to do for our main topic for today is kind of talk about lessons that we've learned over the years sure. as editors, as designers, to maybe help new writers or just DMs creating their own stuff yeah. or players in how to best engage with what DMs are creating. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to kick it off here with a with a first discussion question. Sure. Um, You've edited probably well over a million words, maybe in the four to five million word range or higher um, by this point. Can I can I share something with you? Absolutely. I, I only started tracking my words annually over the last two years. Um, mm -hmm. Like I could I can go back. I, I know what the word counts are for all my time. It's like I go back and gather the old information, but I just wasn't bothering. But I decided year before last, I thought hey, I should, maybe I should keep track of this and actually figure out what I'm doing. And I realized that in. 2018, I edited uh, just over, sorry, edited or wrote. So this is a combination, but I, I, I worked yep. with in some way uh, a million and a half words just in 2018. Yep. And I did 1.8 million words last year, Yep, which kind of blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, it, it doesn't surprise. It doesn't surprise me only because I've kind of done the same thing. Yeah. I went back and looked at between editing, developing, uh, writing, play testing, and so on, how many words. And, yeah, that's why I was like four, four five, five, more, <laughs> because it's been uh, a tremendous amount. So yeah. with all those words under your belt, both in terms of RPG content and other kinds of writing, um, what are some lessons that you could share with DMs or content creators about designing content? from rules to adventures, you know, anything you can think of. Yeah. Um, there are so many rules and so many of the rules are contradictory. I think, I think it's much like writing anything, um, mm -hmm. you know, writing short fiction, writing screenplays. There, there are certain rules you have to sort of, you, you, you adopt them and you absorb them and you figure out mm -hmm. what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And from all of that, you kind of create your own toolkit, right? Okay. The, the first First and most important thing to, to think about is that the way you write, the way you design is not going to be the same as everybody else's. Sure. But you should absolutely try to write and design the way that other people are if they're sharing that information with you to see if it works for you, right? right? Because that's how you figure out what, what ultimately does work for you, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things about gaming writing in specific, and this is, this is germane to, to the process of, of editing RPG work, which is really quite different than any other form of editing that I've ever done or, or still do, is it's a balance of story and mechanics. Now, that seems like an obvious thing to say, right? That's a kind of a dough moment. But mm -hmm. the reason that's important is because I think our brains interact with story and mechanics in different ways. I think the process of writing story, the process of writing mechanics are quite different. I think they take different parts of our mindset. They take different parts of our writer's instincts, right? Mm -hmm. And understanding that and recognizing that when you sit down to write an adventure, you're actually not writing one thing, you're writing two things, and then you're stitching those two things together can be useful. Because if you recognize that your instincts when you're putting down story and narrative and description are different or need to be different than your instincts mm -hmm. when you're putting down mechanics and when you're focusing on rules. That can really, really give you a bit of a leg up in terms of handling the complexity of an adventure design. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a great point, and it's one that I've been struggling with uh, as I've been writing a series of articles for D&D Beyond uh, about adventure writing. Yeah. And I... I you know, it's like I, I do something and then I go back and I analyze it. And so this is part of the an, analyzing process where I say, okay, here is how I write an adventure. And so I've been focusing on, you know, on encounters and, and kind of really the, the mechanics of, of getting these encounters across. And then I step back and say, but what about story? Yeah. You know, and, 
And you know, people who have been commenting on it, rightfully so, are saying, "Well, what about story?" Yeah. And and I think that point you made, where you're writing two things, is super important. And the the designers who I admire most, I think, as I've talked with them about their process, it's they've cut down on the time that it takes for them to go from story to mechanics to to mechanics to story. Yeah. You know, they can they can almost be multitasking while doing the same thing. Yeah. Their brains are even as they're writing story, their brain is thinking about the mechanics behind it. Yeah. And then even as they're writing the mechanics, they're picking up on the next story thread. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean there's there, there's a real I mean this 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 has applications in all writing because what mm-hmm. I mean this 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 dovetails very nicely into the question of as writers, how do we edit ourselves? Okay. Mm -hmm. What does that process look like and feel like? And the reason it's so difficult sometimes, the reason that, you know, every, every writer, myself included, has had the experience of having an editor fix something, you know, or change something, make Mm -hmm. make an adjustment. And we've looked at it and go and gone, I can't believe I didn't see that. Mm-hmm. I can't believe that, you know, I actually left that in there. You know, right. I, I, I'm a failure. I hate myself. <laughs> I have no talent. I'm quitting the industry immediately. Right. Or at least that's, that's usually how it goes for me. Well, yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> the reason for that is because, again, the, the process of writing and the process of analyzing the writing use two different parts of your brain. Okay, they are two completely different and distinct acts, and being able to separate them, learning learning to understand how they feel different from each other, puts you in really good stead to actually be able to look at your own work and to and to switch gears when you need to switch gears, so that mm-hmm. you know, okay, right now I'm focusing on X, then I'm going to focus on Y, then I'm going to go back and review X, right, and then just ultimately making sure everything lines up, which is which mm-hmm. is sort of a, a a third skill, which I think yeah. is which is very unique just just to adventure writing. And to RPG right. writing, yeah, and and it's what I've tried to to do is to kind of work my way around the dreaded writer's block, if mm-hmm. that is such a thing, is to is to switch gears in terms of what what I'm actually looking at as I yes. work. So if I run out of story ideas and I'm sitting there going, I don't know what to do next. Okay, let's go back and look at the monsters I've used in this encounter and tweak it. Is it too strong? Is it too weak? Go yeah. check, check the CRs and just the, the process of switching, you know, the side of the brain you're working on or however you want to say it, yeah. um, will sometimes loosen up that block when you, when it's time to turn back and that ideal will be percolating in your subconscious and come out at the, when you need it, as you focus in a different direction. Yeah, that's that's probably the single best piece of advice um, that that you can give to anybody who is dealing with writer's block. Find something else to work on. If you're stuck on one thing, you are going to stay stuck on that one thing until you reengage your brain with something else. That's just that's mm-hmm. just the way our brains work most of the time, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, you know, work, work on some different section. If you're having trouble with the narrative, work on some mechanics. If you're having trouble with the mechanics, work on some narrative. One of the things I also always do, and this is something that I hardly recommend, is to just skip ahead in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the reasons why I am an inveterate outliner, both for mm-hmm. RPG stuff in my fiction, my novels. You know, I, I, I love to work with a strong outline. This is all, this is just, it's, it's the way I've always worked. It's the way I'm most comfortable working. Mm-hmm. Because if you do that, if you get hung up on one point, and you just sit there staring at it and you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill an hour just staring at this point because I can't figure out where it needs to go or how, or how to get through it. Just mm-hmm. put a parenthetical note in there saying, I'm going to solve this later and skip to the next thing. Yep. And what you'll find most times is that writing the next thing will give you some insight into solving the problem that you just skipped over because mm-hmm. it allows your brain to approach that problem laterally, right? Right. Um, I get a lot of people asking me, like people talking about Dead and Fae, they're like, you know, it's because it's a huge, it's a big adventure. I think it was 60,000, 64,000 words or so. Um, And it's a huge dungeon and it's all these different sections and they're all sort of interacting and interrelating and there's big, you know, the fans have plots going on and all that sort Mm -hmm. of thing, right? And I got a lot of people, you know, asking me, you know, you know, how did you manage all that? How did you actually hold that together? And I tell them, much to their shock usually, that writing Dead and Fae was one of the most straightforward design projects I ever did simply because knowing the scope of the dungeon okay Mm. knowing how all of these sections were laid out and how they all interlocked that created the outline for me right right? I knew that we had like there was there was these overall zones each zone had four sections in it each section had a certain number of rooms in it so you basically got like a like a bullet point outline from the top down 
right? Where, where at the lowest level, it's like, this is the room, this is the encounter, this is what's going on here. So it was really a process of just sort of, you know, putting things together in broad strokes and then focusing in, right? Mm -hmm. And right. every time and I got stuck on something, I always had something else to work on because right. I knew and that even even if I even if I hadn't quite solved the problem in this area, right, I can go and work on the problems in that area, knowing that knowing that 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 they're not going to they're not going to mess each other up. Right. And as you said, with us with a with a project of that size, yeah. having a solid outline will then reassure you that, yes, even if I step away from the place I'm, I'm at. Yeah. I know what I'm going to be doing in the new place, so it doesn't take a lot of mental energy to do that. Exactly, and I can yeah. always step right back and know where I am uh, when when I'm ready to come back. So yeah. that's huge. Yeah, one one of the essential um, skills in writing, I think, and, and you know, this this is for any form of writing, fiction, gaming, whatever, is to be able to focus in on something and know that you don't have to worry about how it fits into other stuff. Okay, mm -hmm. just focus in on the one thing. There's a great anecdote. I'm absolutely horrible with names, but this is a there was a there was a very well known journalist uh, from the I think the, the the late sixties, early seventies, and I was reading an interview with an editor who had worked with this journalist, and they said that he had the most amazing process of writing like front page news stories. He would sit down, he would write a paragraph on one sheet of paper, pull it out, set it aside, write the second paragraph, pull it out, set it aside. He would do that for the entire story. <laughs> then he would sit down with the papers and figure out what order the paragraphs went in, <laughs> right? He would right. literally focus in just on the information that was in each section of the story and then figure out the flow, like how to put those bits together to make the most compelling narrative, yeah. right? Yeah, um, and well, I think, you talk about burying the lead. Uh, you, could, you can unbury <laughs> the lead easily that Exactly, way. yeah. Um, yeah. The one other thing that, that, that I would absolutely recommend to people who are, you know, doing adventure writing, doing any kind of design work. And this, this, this kind of dovetails into what we were talking about in terms of being able to engage with the, with the work on different levels, is to give yourself distance between you and the work. And this is a much tougher process because this generally involves trying to give yourself time on the work. Um, and this is something that's usually in short supply, especially for people who are freelancing and who are you know, balancing freelancing with the rest of their lives, right? But, you know, I've, I've, I've said this to a number of people. I said, if you're working on an assignment and your deadline is, you know, Friday, okay, you absolutely do not want to be finishing your draft on Thursday night, okay? Mm -hmm. As much as it's humanly possible, you have to try to figure out a schedule that will let you approach it sort of in, it's sort of in, in, in successive passes, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. So you can get sort of the whole shape of it together. You can take a, you can step away from it for even like a day, Come back to it, look at it again, and refine it down a bit, okay? Right. Take a step away from it again, come back to it. And this isn't necessarily a process just of saying, okay, I have to write, you know, two drafts or three drafts, right? There's no, there's no magic number of drafts that you need right. to do that will, that will make the work as, as clean and as sharp as it needs to be. It's about the process of being able to step away from it and to come back to it with fresh eyes, Yep. right? Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody else does this. I, I'm sure most people do. But every once in a while, I will find notes that I've written to myself, sometimes on paper, like I'm pulling a desk drawer out or something. Sometimes just in my notes app, I scroll down to the bottom, right, and find, you know, you know things that I, I jotted down on, on a particular project or a story or just ideas for things. And you look at the note and you think, I have absolutely no recollection of writing this, right? <laughs> this note, this right. note effectively feels like it was written by a stranger, Right. That's how you ideally want to feel when you're going back and reviewing your own work. You want to be able the, to see it's that fresh, right? right. So that you're yeah. actually focusing on what's on the page as opposed to what's in your head. Because that's, right. that's the big gulf that trips up every writer. Yep. The story in our head is perfect. It always yep. is, right? The story <laughs> yeah. on the page is translated from the story in our head. And the translation mm -hmm. always has problems. But as long as, yep. we're, as long as the story in our head is so clear and so sharp, it occludes yeah. the story on the page. It puts like a screen over it. So we're sure. seeing the, the story on the page being filtered through the story in our head. And that's yeah. why we miss things. That's why, again, like every writer, myself included, you know, when an editor comes in and looks at something, when you get it proofread, they spot things and you look at it and you go, I, I didn't see that. How could I not have seen that? And the reason you right. didn't see it is because in your head, it wasn't a, it wasn't a mistake. Sure. It, it, sure. It, it, it only becomes a mistake when it goes down on the page. Right. I mean, that goes back to the, the old writer's uh, 
standard of make sure you hand it to someone else to read it. Yeah, you know, even even if it's not a professional editor, hand it to someone else, and you can train yourself to become that other person. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Uh, that's reading it, but as you said, then you have to be able to get that distance and step outside of your own. Yeah, I mean, of your own focus. Yeah, one of the, one of the best ways to do that, if you can, and I, you know, I absolutely recognize that for a lot of freelance uh, uh, projects, this isn't possible. But certainly, certainly, if you're working on your own stuff, right, work on something, get it up to a point where you're really happy with it, and then put it in a drawer and work on your next thing, mm-hmm. and get the next thing to the exact same point, and then when the next thing is done, go back to the first thing. Because yeah. the process of working on something new will change the story in your head. Okay, right. It wipes the old story away so that when you go back and look at the first thing you worked on, you are seeing it with fresher eyes. You're able right. to sort of analyze it in a much more immediate, much more visceral way. Um, yep. And, and it, you know, that, that, that makes the work better. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why if you go to a writer and say, oh, I, I really love that story or that adventure or that novel that you wrote three years ago. Yeah. And they will have absolutely no recollection. Oh, yeah. That's great. Of, of, what, of what, what even was in it. <laughs> and it's because they, they have trained themselves to, to you know, drop that. And now we're on to the next thing. I had a great, uh, I had a great moment like that when I was working on Vault of the Dracovich with Mike Shea and Teo Sabadea way, way mm-hmm. back for D&D Next. We we're talking about sort of the backstory and, you know, like the, there was magic stuff and the cult of the dragon and all this. Right. And um, uh, somebody, probably Teos, because he's the lore guy. Had, uh, we were talking about we we're talking about the death of like the, the, the spell plague and all that. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, actually, uh, uh, Mr. is back now. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then remembered, oh, yeah, I should have known that because I edited the adventure in which she came back. Yep. yep. <laughs> it was just it had gone from my mind. And, and the funny thing was, I wrote that adventure, <laughs> that part of that adventure okay. where she came back. And, Which I had uh, also forgotten. So, Right, exactly. And, and if you hadn't mentioned it, I would have never remembered because I was one of the three writers. Sure. It was a D&D and Encounters, uh, yeah. Encounters uh, adventure. Uh, yeah. So it, oh, it's just, it's, it's like, okay, that was fun. We did it. So, uh, let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on to the next. So yeah. it's... Uh, it's an interesting process. All right, so let's let's delve a little deeper into adventures. Mm-hmm. So you you have again we've already established several million words of editing, writing, yep. and so on. Um, so what goes into a good adventure? Uh, what and what are some things maybe to avoid in an adventure? I think this is this is an interesting question for me because this this discussion happens a lot. People are always talking about this, and. For me, it's a question that doesn't really have an answer, and that's that's part of what makes it an interesting discussion, but also a frustrating discussion. Okay, sure. because I think people are really looking for the idea that there's a checklist, or at least let, at least a checklist of starting points. Like even if you can go in different directions and you take it your own way, that there's mm-hmm. something you can sort of start with and say, okay, you know, if I have these things in, then this is this is the bare minimum that I need. And I don't think that list exists. I think there is a list of things to avoid, um, mm-hmm. which is which is a little which is a little sharper and a little more focused. But okay. the reality is that adventures can be anything we want them to be, right? Mm-hmm. Adventures can be big or they can be small. They can be like you know the the the, the mega hardcover apocalyptic adventures, um, which are sort of the tone for what a lot of uh, for what, for what Wizards of the Coast is doing with the hardback mm-hmm. adventure lines. You know, yep. um, the Avernus book, uh, Tomb of Annihilation, are you know really really strong examples of, you know, the world blowing up, and your characters yep. are in a position to save it. You know, that's that's great. You know, big sort of you know epic fun, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a mistake to look at that and say, okay, you know, these adventures are really successful. Everybody really loves you know what's going on um, in the Avernus book, right? So that's mm-hmm. what I have to do because that's not what you have to do. What you have to do if you're writing an adventure is come up with an idea which resonates with you and which you mm-hmm. think will resonate with other players. Sure. And that can literally be anything. It can be as big or as small as you want it to be, as long as the characters are engaged in the story. So I think that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the one most important thing I would, I would, I would probably put down. Is okay. the idea that whatever you're writing an adventure, and again, this is obvious advice. I'm not the first person to say this. I know, you know, it, it's been said many, many times, but you need to put the characters in a position where they are making the decisions that are driving the story. Mm-hmm. That's the ultimate goal of it's the ultimate goal of all fiction, I think, in general. Right. But it's the ultimate goal of adventures because adventures are 
a very specific form of fiction in which if the characters are bored, they will tell you that they're bored, <laughs> right? In yes. fiction, you can kind of plow through, you know, like reading, you know, the, the, the Song of Ice and Fire books. And it's like, okay, I'm on the third page of George R. R. Martin, you know, describing the food and the clothes yeah. at, this, at this feast, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, can't, you, you can get away with that in fiction in ways you can't get away with it in gaming. When you're writing an right. adventure, it needs to be more focused. The characters need to feel like they are at the center of what's going on and not just the center of the action because that's an easy mistake to make is is this mm -hmm. thing okay like i want to make sure the characters are challenged i'm just going to throw stuff at them okay mm -hmm. the characters need to feel the players need to feel like they're making choices that matter right. within the world okay. of your story okay now i'm going to hit you with a really hard question please given the fact that you have a limited amount of space generally yeah and you can't write everything that the characters that the players would possibly want to do. Yeah. How do you do that given the limited scope that adventures present? That's the that's the biggest question. And that's the reason yeah. I mean that's that's the prime reason why I think there's there's never gonna be a sense of, you know, what makes the best adventure, what's the best way to write an adventure. Mm -hmm. Simply because every adventure has to kind of balance the sense of what is possible and what is reasonable. Okay. okay. It's possible that the characters will come in, talk to the quest giver, and then burn the town down. Mm -hmm. Okay. Without actually. With my under... players, it's likely. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah. But you know, whether that's reasonable is is really up to the DM. Like some DMs, right. especially ones who are just who sort of play fast and loose and do a lot of improv, you know, they can deal with that. Right. We actually, I remember quite distinctly in the Ak Inc. book, we talked about that in a number of places, saying. Mm -hmm. I think it was actually one of your sidebars. You said, you know, the, if, you know, if the if the the characters burn the town down, here's what you can do, right? right. Just, just right. in case. Um, what you're doing with an adventure, I think, is you're setting out the parameters of a story. Again, nothing new. Lots of people talk about this, right? But you have the choice of of setting the scope of the story within those parameters. Okay, you can say, here's the range of things that are possible, but there's a there's like a limiting circle around the outside of the story beyond which you don't want to push. Mm -hmm. And here's how you can you know, here's how you can restrain the characters if things get crazy. Here's how you can make the players understand that they're supposed to be sort of pulled back here and not ranging off in other ways. Right. Um, there's lots of tricks to do this. I mean, the quest, the trusted quest giver is one. Okay. Mm -hmm. The random quest giver doesn't always work because as, as you said, you've noted sometimes, you know, the, the players and the characters are like, yeah, you know what? We don't know this guy, you know, yeah. we don't have any particular reason to do what he's asking us to do. That's mm -hmm. why I think like a lot of adventures, you know, stress very clearly if it's possible to create a connection between mm -hmm. this quest giver, <clears throat> pardon me. And um, one of the players do that, you know, make it a relative, make it an old friend, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Right. Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, one of the great things that that fifth edition did especially was the character backgrounds, mm -hmm. um, because then as an adventure designer or as the DM, even if you don't know your players themselves, uh, th those backgrounds kind of give a form and a shape to a character that you can use yeah. to when you're making the puzzle of an adventure, yeah. that shape fits very nicely in this hole in my adventure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, any, any connections you can create are good things because connections ultimately are where story is told. That's, that's, that's what defines story. Okay. Mm -hmm. The choices characters make in fiction, um, and how those, how those choices impact how the story spins out from the moments of choice. That's really what fiction comes down to. And I think good adventures have to follow the same kinds of rules. But here's the most important thing. When you're writing an adventure, an adventure story, if, it's, if, it, if it comes out well, like if the story turns out to be well told at the table, if the DM and the players come together and, and come up with something that, every, that everybody really enjoys, that, that everybody seems really happy with, okay? It can be an affecting story. It can be it can be an engaging story without necessarily being a good story, mm -hmm. because sure. the stories that happen to us are always interesting to us. Mm -hmm. This is why I think adventures are so cool. Why 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 RPGs in general are such a cool form of expression and communication, because mm -hmm. they allow us to tell stories that are meaningful. Mm -hmm. Okay, by definition, right. because we are the people in the stories. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yes. So I was trying to think of um, one of the, uh, 
I'm sure everybody's had the experience of, of having somebody, you know, try to tell them about something that happened in an adventure. You know, hey, right. you know, let me tell you what happened in our last session. And you're kind of sitting and you're listening and you're like, okay, I can understand, you know, how this was exciting, but it's not really clicking for me. Right. right? And the reason for that is because for the people who are in the story, the story has more impact. Right. Sure. It has it has that that sense of that sense of importance. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, this is. I mean, this is why I like. I like the idea that not all adventures need to be these big apocalyptic um, epics. I like the idea that there are small adventures. There are things which are sort of intimate, and you can engage the characters on that level just as easily and just as effectively as you engage them on the the world is blowing up. You have to save it level. Yeah. Right. There are two different. There's there's all these different types of storytelling that can go into adventures. I think that's right. one of the things that makes adventures really cool and unique. Yeah, I, and I think it's it's playing with the goals of the characters. Yes. Because if if you, at least in my experience, if you go to a player and he ha, he or she has a character in front of them, and and you say, "What are your character's goals?" Yeah. You're generally either not going to get a very specific answer, or you're going to get one of these three: you know, save the world, go up in levels, or gain wealth. Yes. Right. That's that's what they want. But if in your story you can present goals that they adopt, yes, whether they are, as you said, these epic things or just, you know, make sure the baker's uh, oven yeah. gets fixed, <laughs> that then that becomes the most important thing yeah. in, in that character's life at that moment. Oh, yeah. One of, one of the best adventure hooks that I like to use, one that, one that I use far more often than I've ever used, you know, the, the, the quest giver or the, or the you know, rumors about evil uh, arising out of town, is the idea of characters in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Okay, these are characters yeah. who maybe don't want to be heroes. They weren't setting out to be heroes, right? Maybe their goal was much more modest, um, but they end up in a situation where it's like stuff is happening and somebody needs to fix it. And guess what? We're the only people here, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's a great hook because again, it, it 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 puts the players and the characters in a position where they get to freely make that choice to say, okay, we're going to step up, yep. right? We are going to be the heroes that this moment demands. And as long as the characters and the players are making that choice, as long as the players are in a position where they, where they can say, yeah, you know, this is something I chose to do freely, everything that spins out after that, even if it's, you know, a fairly straightforward kind of railroady dungeon crawl, right, everything that spins out after that feels like it's part of what they wanted to do. It's part of the path they chose, mm-hmm. right? And that really, yeah. really makes adventures work seamlessly if the, if, if the players really feel like this is, we are here because we wanted to be here. Okay. Now, speaking of, you know, giving the players an impetus to want to do what the adventure says. Yeah. I wanted to talk about writing projects, uh, products for kids sure. and for new players. Yeah. Since you've, you know, had a lot of experience in that area, again, both as a designer and as an editor. Yeah. So um, what have you learned from the products that you've worked on that are more focused towards kids or new players? Um, I think it's, I mean, there's two questions there because I think the way that kids play and the way that new players in general play are, are similar but slightly different. Right? Okay, cool. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I really noticed when I started playing with kids, the, the, the Hidden Halls of Hazakor adventure originally grew out of an adventure that I wrote for a middle school RPG club that I was running at the school where my wife teaches uh, some years okay. ago. So that's kind of like I dusted that off and, and uh, rewrote it for the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I noticed was that kids, at least at, at, at that point in time, um, they engage with the idea of gaming on a, just an absolutely pure level. Okay? okay. They are just absolutely enthralled with the idea of, I get to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Because when you're 10 or 12 years old, you generally live a life where you don't get to do everything you want to do. Yes. And that was the first thing that I noticed playing with kids was like one of the, one of the, the most intense parts of it for them was going shopping before the dungeon. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they're like, I have money i can buy what i want i'm going to the store right because when you're 10 years old that's not an experience that you often have especially True. not an experience where you can go and buy weapons right <laughs> oh, well you live in canada i live in the u.s so okay. that's a whole different a whole different thing it's that cultural divide right sure um I think for new players in general, that extends a little bit, but it but it really just boils down to, again, that idea of they want to feel like they're making a choice. Especially, I think, for players who are used to video games, players who are used to sort of, you know, more more traditional, for them, 
RPG mm-hmm. tropes of, okay, here's a character, here's what you're going to do. It's kind of, it's established from the get-go that, you know, that your character is in this area, they're in this situation, and this is what's going to happen because that's right. what the game is, you know, that's, that's what was promised on the game. It's on the cover, it's on the back cover text. You know what mm-hmm. you're doing there, right? Yep. So for new players, introducing them really quickly to the idea that, you know, even though this is what's expected of you, you can do something else if you want, I think is a huge, huge selling point for tabletop RPGs. Mm-hmm. You know, just mm-hmm. having something in there where they can make the decision about what they want to do. One of the obvious things to try to do in an adventure to make that possible is to have multiple hooks that all lead to the same area, right? Sure. This is kind of a trick in a lot of ways, and a lot of people I know don't like this because they're like, oh, this is just like, you know, sort of stealth railroading, right? If I don't have the choice mm-hmm. about where I want to go, that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I think that's true up to a point, mm-hmm. but I think it's also true that. Any amount of choice that we can put into an adventure is a positive thing because it helps the players in, engage if they feel right. like their characters are doing things freely, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The idea of like an, you know your, your 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 standard dungeon crawl with a hallway and there's two doors and you know, one door has a monster and one door doesn't have a monster, right? You know everything comes down to which door the players choose, whether it's an easy encounter or a difficult encounter. And if you mm-hmm. decide you want to do the difficult encounter, you can just swap the doors. Right. You can just say, okay, this was in the room on the left, but I'm going to put it in the room on the right because that's the adventure I want to run. That is a kind of railroading, to be sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I think it's consistent with the way that adventures work. You know, and I think right. it works okay. If you do too much of that, obviously, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. But as yeah. long as you are allowing the players to work from a perspective of, you know, what happens is ultimately up to them. Okay. Right. It's their choice about what happens. That they are they are driving the adventure rather than the adventure being something which is happening to them. Sure. Right. As long as yep. that's the case, then I think that's 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 where new players really can have the opportunity to fall in love with the game. Yep. And it's also important for the DM, I think, to have that freedom mm-hmm. because they are as much a storyteller, if not more, than the players. Oh yeah. And as as long as the players know that they can trust the DM yeah. is leading them to a place where the story is more interesting yeah. than, than, you know, yeah, the players wanted to go talk to this person, but, you know, that's going to be 45 minutes of a waste of time. Right. Um, and the DM can figure that out and know that, and let's get to the part that's going to be cool. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I think one of the, one of the, one of the best, tricks that any dm can learn you know, and, and 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 any adventure designer whether you're writing for publication whether you're just writing for yourself is the idea of learning to improvise learning to really be able to learning to not be afraid to improvise i guess mm-hmm. okay would be the first step because that's because sure. that's something that a lot of people are absolutely terrified of it seems very very scary to go off mm-hmm. grid Right. Yep. Especially if you're playing with a published adventure. Right. Yeah. Anything you can do to learn how to improvise puts you in a position where you can work with the players, you know, as an equal to kind of course correct and to and to build the adventure around the things that they want to do. So that, you know, like the example you just gave. Right. Like if they want to go talk to this guy and, you know, okay, that's that's a dead end because I've read the adventure. Right. Or that's mm-hmm. going to lead them down this other path where they don't want to go yet. Right. Because mm-hmm. that's because yeah. that's going to take them away from the from the primary goal. Right. It's, it's, it's never an easy thing, but it's almost always possible to just say, okay, they want to go that way. I'm going to take them going that way, and I'm going to lead them back around here without them ever knowing it, simply sure. by learning how to improvise, how to sort of adjust things on the fly. Um, yeah. I, think, I think that's the – it's a really, really useful and important skill, and it's a pretty daunting process for a lot of DMs. Um, so it's yep. something that's important to sort of focus on. Yep. One of the things that I've actually tried to do is if you're running a published adventure, say, and it's got box text. So you, you know, they're on the path, you read the box text, they make their decision, they do the thing, they go to the next encounter, and you read the box text, and then they go off, and they're, they do something that you didn't expect, mm-hmm. but you don't want them to know. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've, I've, I have in the past pretended to be reading box text. Oh, yeah? To let the players think that they're on the right course oh, cool. because I want them to continue. I don't want them to freak out that, uh-oh, you know, he's put down the adventure and now he's just running things right. like crazy. So we must be way off course. He's pulling random uh, tables up on his phone. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, I have literally stood there looking at the paper, making up, quote-unquote, box text. That's cool. uh, 
just to, but it, you know, because I knew the players at the table would freak out if if they were worried like finishing on time because we it was, this was at a convention. Um, so you know, so you, there are lots of different tricks you can do to improvise without, um, you know, without letting the players know you're improvising. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a good skill to have, and yeah, from someone who grew up running just off the top of my head. I, and then getting back into D&D through organized play where it's a lot of published adventures, mm-hmm. you know, I, I got out of the habit of improvising. Yeah. And I'm at the point now where I, I'm realizing I need to, to start uh, flexing that muscle again mm-hmm. because otherwise it's, it is going to atrophy and that wouldn't be good for anything. So I've started to try to do more improvising when I'm running games at, say, conventions or running, like, for a home group. Cool. Um, just to just to keep that part of of me as a DM, uh, you know, usable. Yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Well, we are at the fifty minute mark, and so I wanted to say first of all, thank you very much, Scott, for coming onto the show and talking with us. This was an absolutely tremendous episode. Oh, thank you very and much. I can't for the wait for everybody to hear it. Yeah. No. Thanks for the opportunity. It was a great chat. It did. It, and. Went by went by much faster. It doesn't it doesn't feel like fifty minutes. <laughs> it it certainly doesn't. Yeah. Uh, I looked at the time and went, "Hey, how'd we get there?" Yeah. Uh, but also, I want to thank all our listeners and all our patrons for supporting the show. If you out there would like to support the show, there are many things that you can do to help. We have a Patreon at Patreon.com/slash/MMP. Um, if you would give us money there it would help us pay our hosting costs edit the show and so on if you can't afford to help us with money just give us a review on whatever medium that you listen um, that would be very helpful or just talk about down with the indie on social media let people know that you enjoy the show and let us know that you want us to keep doing it and we'd appreciate that um Scott, where can people find you on the Internet? Uh, people can find me on the Internet usually either on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, I've, I'm on there as SF Gray or also as Insane Angel Studios, which is the little umbrella organization for my uh, fiction and gaming work. Uh, I'm on Twitter as Scott F. Gray. Uh, I have a website, InsaneAngel.com, which usually doesn't have anything on it except just pointing people to Facebook and Twitter. Okay. So. And they can also find your goods on the DMs Guild or DriveThruRPG? Yeah, DMs Guild and DriveThruRPG have a small smattering of uh, titles. I'm hoping to get more titles on there. I have the horrible problem that every freelancer loves, which is I tend to be so busy working on other people's stuff, I sometimes run out <laughs> of time to work on my own stuff. I'm hoping to rectify that this year, so hopefully there'll awesome. be some more things out there. All right, and we will have links in the show notes to all of these places. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can talk with me on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, hey, Scott, uh, what are we going to do now? Go kill some monsters. Sweet. Except because we're talking about how adventures should always evolve character agency and the DM should learn how to improvise. Don't forget, you can also negotiate with the monsters or you can trick them into fighting other monsters or you can just have like a stark debate with them that underlines how there are more maybe things that unite you than divide you and maybe the real monsters are the people who want you to fight each other in the first place. So, go debate some monsters. Debate some monsters today. (laughs) And we're out. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?